If you think you need expensive GPUs to get started with artificial intelligence, then think again. Use your existing Intel Xeon processors on Dell PowerEdge servers to get started today, with exciting AI use cases from finance to healthcare and more. Dell EMC and Intel are proud to sponsor the AI Thought Leaders on the Voices in AI podcast. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Stephen Wolfram. Few people can be said to literally need no introduction, but he is one of them. But as a refresher, Stephen Wolfram, um, exploder in the world as a, as a child prodigy who made all kinds of contributions to physics. He worked with uh, Feynman, but unlike many prodigies, he didn't peak at 18 or 28 or 38 or 48. In fact, probably hasn't peaked at all right now. He went on to create Mathematica, which still ripples through the technology world. He wrote um, his magnum opus, A New Kind of Science, and he created Wolfram Alpha, an answer engine that grows better and better by the day. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks. So I usually start off by asking, what is artificial intelligence? But I want to ask you a different question. What is intelligence? It's a complicated and slippery concept. I think you know, I, I, it's useful to start maybe in thinking about what's maybe an easier concept. What is life? You might think that was an easy thing to define. I mean, you know, here, here on Earth, you can pretty much tell whether something is alive or not. You know, you dig down, you look in a microscope, you figure out, you know, does it have RNA? Does it have cell membranes? Does it have all those kinds of things that are kind of characteristic of life as we know it on Earth? The question is, you know, what abstractly is something like life? And we just don't really know. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, there were, you know, these spacecraft sent to Mars and they would dig up soil and they had this definitive test for life at some point, which was you feed it sugar and you see whether it metabolizes. Now, I doubt that in an, in an abstract sense, that's a good, you know, fundamental definition of life. In the case of life on Earth, we kind of have a definition because it's connected by this sort of thread of history all life is kind of connected by a thread of history. Well, it's sort of the same thing with intelligence. If you ask, you know, what is the fundamental essence of intelligence? Well, in the case of uh, uh, kind of the intelligence that we know with, with humans and so on, it's sort of all connected by a thread of history. If we ask, you know, what in, is intelligence abstractly, that's a much harder question. And I think it's one I've thought about for a long time. I think the the the, the sort of uh, the the what's necessary to to say that something is intelligent is for it to be capable of some level of sophisticated computation. If the thing, if all the thing does is to kind of add two numbers together and that's the only thing it can do, it's, we're not going to likely consider it intelligent. But, your, but, that, but your theory is that hurricanes are computational and icicles and indeed, DNA. And so they're all intelligent. As, as people often say, you know, the weather has a mind of its own. And the question is, can we distinguish the kind of intelligence that, uh, the, the kind of mind in effect that is associated with the computations that go on in fluid mechanics from the kind of intelligence that we have in our brains? Um, and I think the answer is ultimately there really isn't a bright line distinction between those. The only thing that is special about the intelligence that we have is that it's connected to our kind of thread of history and our kind of biological evolution and uh, the evolution of our civilization and things like this. I don't think we can say that uh, it's uh, that there's something we, we can't distinguish um, at some sort of scientific level. You know, what's that essential feature 
that means that you know brain is intelligent uh you know weather doesn't really have a mind so to speak and th- th- this you know i think the thing that's interesting about kind of modern computation and ai and so on is that we're sort of seeing our first examples of some kind of alien intelligence we're seeing our sort of first examples of things that clearly have things that are very reminiscent of human like uh kind of uh, what we have traditionally called intelligent behavior um but yet they don't work in anything like the same way and we can argue back and forth forever about is this really intelligence or not and i think it becomes you know just a question of you know what do we choose to make the word mean in my life i've been involved in a lot of kind of making computers do things that before that only humans could do and people had often said oh well when computers can do this or that thing then we'll know they're intelligent um and one could go through the list of some of those things whether it's doing you know mathematical computation or doing uh, image recognition or doing whatever um every time when when computers actually manage to do these things the typical response is um oh well yes that isn't really intelligence because well because what well usually the real reason people think it isn't sort of really intelligence is because somehow you can look inside and see how it works now of course to some extent you can do that with brains too but i think one of the things that sort of new in recent times is something that i've sort of long been expecting anticipating working on actually um which is the the appearance of computation that is doing things that are really interesting to humans but where we as humans can't really understand what's going on inside in other words you know the typical sort of model of computation has been uh you know you want to build a program for a particular task you know you the human engineer um put the pieces together in a kind of very intentional way where you know you kind of know when i put this piece and this piece and this piece together then it's going to do this and that's what i want it to do well for example i've been interested for a really long time in what i call mining the computational universe of possible programs just sort of studying simple programs for example and going and searching trillions of them to find ones that uh, behave in particular ways that turn out to be useful for some purpose that we have well the thing that's happened in modern times with kind of deep learning and neural networks and so on is it's become possible to do that same kind of uh sort of program discovery in a in a slightly different way than than I've done it because it turns out that one can use actually you know the ideas of calculus to kind of make incremental progress in finding uh programs that do kind of the things one wants them to do but in any case the 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 you know the basic idea is the same that is you are by some criterion you're finding from the sort of computational universe of possible programs you're finding programs that serve some purpose that's useful to us whether that purpose is you know identifying elephants from teacups or whether that purpose is uh you know the, the translating between human languages or, or whatever else um and the thing that is sort of uh interesting and maybe a little bit shocking right now is the extent to which when you take one of these programs that sort of been found by you know by by essentially search in this uh space of possible programs and you look at it and you say how does it work and you realize you really don't know how it works you know each individual piece you can uh you know identify what it's doing you can break it down look at the sort of atoms of the program and see how they work but when you say what's the big picture what's it really doing what's the what's the ultimate story here the answer is we just don't know 
And this you mean like move, I, move 37 in AlphaGo? You know, this, this move that even the greatest player in the world was like, I what? Haven't I, haven't, I haven't followed that particular uh, system. But, but um, I tried to program a computer to play Go in 1973 and discovered it was hard. <laughs> but, um, but, but, to, but to back up a minute, wouldn't you say Google passed that point a long time ago? If you say, why did this page rank number two and not number three? You know, people would say, even Google would look at it and go, oh, you know, it's, who knows? It's, it's an alchemy of so many different things. But, but to say I, that... I don't know. I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't seen the source code of, of uh, you know, the Google search engine. I know in my own, uh, it is search engines, search systems are, are kind of a, a sort of a messy um, kind of, uh, you know, the hundreds of signals that go in and... Uh, you know, they're ranked in some way or another. I, I don't think that that, I, I think it, in that particular case, the sort of the backtrace of, okay, this was the signal that, uh, you know, that was these signals that were important in this thing. Uh, you know, I think to some extent that's a, uh, uh, it's it's a little simpler, but it's, it's the same. I mean, uh, that's a case where the, it tends to be more of a, I think, more of a one-shot kind of thing. That is, you evaluate these, the values of these signals, and then you say, okay, let's feed them into some uh, function that mushes together the signals and decides what the ranking should be. Um, I think what tends to be a little shock, more shocking, more interesting, it hasn't really happened completely with the current generation of, of deep learning neural nets, although it's, it's beginning to happen. It has happened very much so with the kind of programs that I've studied a lot, like cellular automata, and a bunch of the kinds of programs that we've discovered sort of out in the computational universe that we use to, to make Wolfram Alpha work and to make lots of other algorithms that we build work. In those kinds of programs, what happens is it's not just sort of a one-shot thing where it's just this, you know, this one messy function that's applied to some data to get a result. It's a sequence of actually not very messy steps, often a sequence of simple identical steps, but together you know, you apply it 10,000 times, and it's really unclear what's going on. Well, I want to back, I I back up, if I can, just a minute, because my original question was, what is intelligence? And you said it's computation. And you're, you're well known for believing everything is computation, time and space and the hurricane and the icicle and DNA and all of that. So if you really are saying everything is intelligence, isn't that like to beg the question? Like you're saying, well, everything's intelligence. Uh, and then, I mean, so what, what is it? I mean, for instance... Yeah. The hurricane has no purpose. So you could say intelligence is a purposeful action uh, with, the, with the goal in mind. Purposeful action. You're, going to, you're then going to slide down another slippery slope. You know, in, you know, when you try and start defining purpose, it, for us as humans, we say, well, we're doing this because. And then we're doing this because, and, and there'll be some story that eventually involves kind of our own history or the history of our civilization or our cultural beliefs or whatever else. And it ends up being really specific. You know, if you say, uh, why is the earth going around in its orbit? Okay. Does it have a purpose? I don't know. It's, uh, you know, you could say, well, it's going around in this particular orbit because that minimizes the action in a, a, a sort of technical term in mechanics associated with this mechanical system. Or you could say it's going around its orbit because it's following these equations, or it's going around its orbit because, you know, the solar system was formed in this way and it started going around in this orbit. Um, I don't think that, uh, you know, when we talk, when there are human explanations of purpose, 
they quickly devolve into a discussion of things that are you know, pretty specific to human history and so on. I don't think that you can start saying, and you know, if you say, why did the, um, uh, I don't know, why did the pulsar magnetosphere produce this blip? Well, the answer is there'll be a story behind it. You know, it produced that blip because there was this imperfection in the, you know, there was this phase transition in the, in the, uh, you know, in something in the crust of the pulsar, a neutron star, and that had this consequence, and that had this consequence, and so on. There's a story. Just well, like you're convoluting story. words. You're, you're, because is intentional, but how is not. So really the question you're asking is how did that happen? And that is bereft of, of purpose and therefore bereft of intelligence. But, but to your point, if, if computation is intelligence, then by definition there's no such thing as non-intelligence. And I'm sure you've looked at something and said, that's not very intelligent or no, that's no, not intelligent. No, no, no. There's a, there's a definite threshold. I mean, you know, if you look at a system and all it does is, I don't know, stay constant over time. You start it in some state and just stays that way. Okay, nothing, nothing exciting is going on there. There are plenty of systems where, for example, it will just repeat what it does. Will just repeat predictably, you know, over and over again. Or, you know, it makes some elaborate nested pattern, but it's a very predictable pattern. That as you as you look at different kinds of systems, there's this definite threshold that gets passed, and it's related to this thing I call principle of computational equivalence, which is basically the statement that beyond some very low level of kind of structural complexity of the system, the system will typically be capable of a certain level of sophisticated computation. And all systems are capable of that same level of sophisticated computation. So one, one facet of that is the idea of universal computation, that uh, everything can you know, be emulated by a Turing machine and can emulate a Turing machine. Um, but that's uh, that's a little bit more to this principle of computational equivalence than than the than the specific feature of universal computation. But basically, the idea it could have been the case. Okay, if we've been having this conversation, oh, let's say a hundred years ago, okay, people had mechanical calculators at that time, and they had ones that did one operation, did another kind of operation. We might be having a discussion along the lines of, oh, look at all these different uh, kinds of computers that exist, um, you know, there'll always be uh, sort of uh, different kinds of computers that one needs. Turns out that's not true. It turns out all one needs is this one kind of thing that's a universal computer. And that one kind of computer kind of covers all possible forms of computation. And so then the question is, if you look at other kinds of systems, do they do computation at the same level as things like universal computers? Or are there many different levels, many different in, in, incoherent kinds of computation that get done? And the thing that has sort of emerged from uh, both sort of general uh, discoveries that have been made and specifically lots of stuff I've done is that, no, you know, anything that we seriously imagine could be made in our universe seems to have this one kind of computation, this one level of computation that it can do. And there are things that are below that level of computation and whose behavior is readily predictable, for example, by a thing like a brain that is at this kind of uniform, sophisticated level of computation. But once you reach that kind of sophisticated level of computation, everything is kind of equal. And in fact, if that wasn't the case, then we would expect that if, if for example, there was a whole sort of spectrum of different levels of computation, then 
the sort of the, the top computer, so to speak, we could expect would be able to say, oh, you know, you lower, lesser computers, you know, you're wasting your time. You don't need to go through and, and uh, do all those computations. I, the, I the, the, the top computer, can immediately tell you what's going to happen. You, you know, you're going to, the end result of everything you're doing is going to be this. Well, it could be that, the, that you know, mm -hmm. things work that way, but it isn't, in fact, the case. Um, instead, what seems to be the case is that there's this one kind of uniform level of computation. And in a sense, it's that uniformity of, of level of computation that has a, con has a lot of consequences that we're very familiar with. For example, it, you know, it could be the case if, if nature, for example, mostly consisted of things whose level of computational sophistication was lower than the computational sophistication of our brains, we would readily be able to work out what was going to happen in the natural world sort of all of the time. And there wouldn't be any, you know, when we look at some complicated weather pattern or something, we would immediately say, oh, no, we, you know, we're a smarter computer. We can just figure out what's going to happen here. It, it, we don't need to let the computation of the weather kind of take its course. And I think it's uh, so what, what I think happens um, is it's this sort of equality of computation that uh, leads to a lot of things that we kind of know are true. For example, it, it's that's why it seems to us that you know the weather has a mind of its own. The weather almost seems to be acting with free will. We can't predict you know what if if the if the system doesn't have if the system is readily predictable by us, then it will not seem to be kind of free in its will. It will not seem to be free in the actions it takes. It will seem to be just something that is following some definite rules, like kind of a, a 1950s, you know, sci-fi robot type thing. Um, and uh, you know, but but I think you know, people, uh, th this this whole area of uh, kind of what is purpose, how do we identify what purpose is? I think I think in the end, this is a, a very critical kind of thing to discuss in terms of sort of the. The fundamentals of AI, because I think that um, uh, one of the things people ask is, okay, so you know we've got AI, we've got uh, increasing automation of lots of kinds of things. Um, where will that end? And I think one of the key places that it will end is purpose is not something that is available to be automated, so to speak. It doesn't make sense to think about automating purpose. And that's, it's for the same reason that it doesn't make sense. The, the same reason that, that I'm, I'm saying it's this question of, of uh, that, you, that you can't have kind of a, um, uh, that you can't distinguish these different things as saying that that's a purpose, that's not a purpose, and so on. It's the same reason that purpose is this kind of thing that is, in some sense, tied to the bearer of that purpose, in this case, humans, for example. And insofar as go ahead, yeah. So, you know, you 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 frequently like when I when I read your writings or when I talk to you, you you say this this thing that people keep thinking that there's something special about them. They keep coming up with things the machine can't do. They don't like the idea. They don't want to give the machine intelligence because. Oh, oh, so you you come across as being really down on people. Uh, and, and so I would, I would almost reverse it to say, surely there isn't some kind of an equivalence between a hurricane, an iPhone, and a human being. 
Or is there? And if there isn't, what is special about people? What's special about people is all of our detailed history. And, you know, well, that's it's just kind different. Of a, that's just different than other things. The iPhone has a yeah, detailed history yeah. and the hurricane, but that isn't special. That's just unique. Well, what's the difference between special and unique? I mean, well, it, it, it's, it's kind it's of ironic because, as, as you know, you know, I'm very much of a, a person who's interested in people. So, it well, is, that's what I'm know, curious. It, like, why is that? Because you, you, you seem to take this perverse pride in, in saying, ah, people used to think computers could never do this, and now they do it. And then they said they could never do this, and ha-ha, they do it. And, and, and I just kind of wonder, like, I try to reconcile that with the other part of you, which is, which is clearly a humanist. Like, it, it's almost bifurcated. Like, half of your brain, you know, like, intellectually has constructed this model of moral equivalence between hurricanes and people. And then the other half of you kind of doesn't believe it. Um, you know, one of the things about doing science is if you try to do it well, you kind of have to go where the science leads. You know, I didn't come into this believing that that would be the conclusion. In fact, I didn't expect that to be the conclusion. I expected that I would be able to find some sort of uh, um, magnificent bright line, you know, something. In fact, I expected that these, you know, simple cellular automata I studied would be too simple for physics too simple for brains and so on. And it was, you know, it took me many years actually to come to terms with the idea that that wasn't true. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a big surprise to me. I think, you know, insofar as I might be, uh, feel good about my efforts in science, it's that, you know, I actually have tried to follow what the science actually says rather than what my personal prejudices might be. Because, you know, it is certainly true that personally, uh, you know, I find people interesting. I'm a big people enthusiast, so to speak. Now, in fact, what I kind of think is that the the way that I think things work in terms of the nature of computational intelligence and AI and so on is actually not anti-people in the end. It is merely, in fact, it's, it's in some sense, it's more pro-people than you might think. Because what I'm really saying is that because computational intelligence is sort of generic, the people are, there's, there's something, it's not like we have sort of the AI, which is a competitor for, you know, okay, there's not just going to be one intelligence around, they're going to be two. No, that's not the way it is. There's an infinite number of these intelligences around. And so the, in a sense, the non-human intelligence, we can think of as a, almost a generic mirror that we imprint in some way with the particulars of our intelligence. So in other words, you know, what one's saying is, eventually we will be able to make the universe uh, and through you know, computation and so on, do our bidding um, you know, uh, more and more. So then the question is, what is that bidding? And in a sense, what we're seeing here is more, if anything, is in some ways an amplification of the role of the human condition rather than its diminution, so to speak. In other words, what we're saying is um, it's, uh, you know, we can imprint sort of human will on lots and lots of kinds of things. It's not the case. And, and is that human will somehow special? Well, it's certainly special to us. Is it the case if we're going into a competition, you know, who's more purposeful than who? 
it's it's you know that degenerates into a meaningless uh, questions of definition, which, as I say, I think to us we will certainly seem to be the most purposeful because we're the only things where we can actually tell that whole story about purpose. I think that, um, so in other words, I, I actually don't think, it's an interesting question, but I actually don't think in the end that it is, uh, uh, you know, one, uh, that, that the sort of a, uh, maybe not, was not intended this way, but, you know, my own personal trajectory in these things is, you know, I've tried to sort of follow the science to where the science leads. Uh, I've also tried to some extent to follow the technology to where the technology leads. So, you know, you know, I'm a big enthusiast of um, personal analytics and, you know, storing all kinds of data about myself and about all kinds of things that I do and so on. And you might think, and, you know, I certainly hope and expect um, one day to increasingly make a bot of myself, so to speak. My, my staff claim maybe maybe flattering me that that I'm one of the you know that my attempt to make the you know SW email responder will be one of the last things that gets successfully turned into a purely automated system but we we will see um but you know the question is to what extent you know when one is kind of looking at all this data about oneself and and sort of turning what one might think of as a sort of purely uh human existence, so to speak, into something that's full of, you know, gigabytes of data and so on, you know, is that a, a dehumanizing act? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think in a sense, it's, it's one of the things one learns from that is kind of how uh, it, it's kind of just a, um, uh, uh, in a sense, it makes the human more important rather than less because it's like, okay, there are all these little quirks of, you know, what was the, uh, you know, what was the was the precise way that I was typing keystrokes on this day as opposed to that day? Well, it might be who cares, but um, you know, when one actually has that data, there's a uh, there's kind of a way in which one can sort of understand more about those detailed human quirks and recognize more about those in a way that one couldn't without without that data when one was just sort of uh, you know acting like an ordinary human, so to speak. So presumably you want your email responder to live on after you, like people will still be able to email you in a hundred years or a thousand years and, and get a real Stephen Wolfram reply. Who knows? Okay. So let me be, ask you, let me, let me, I know that, you know, you, you have this, this uh, absolute lack of patience. Anytime somebody seems to talk about something that, that, um, that tries to look at these issues in any way other than just really scientifically. And, and I appreciate I that. I think of myself as a very patient person, but I don't know. That may look different from the outside. But I will say, you do believe consciousness is a physical phenomenon. Like, it exists, correct? What on earth does that mean? So, all righty. Uh, fair enough. See? See, that's what I mean. Exactly. Um, so, Let there me is ask a, you a question no, along no, no, the same line. Okay. Do you think that, you know, uh, you know, does computation exist? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So what on earth does the word exist mean to you? Is that well, really, so I don't think consciousness you were objecting to, it's the word exist. So I am, okay. yes, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what you mean by the word exist. Okay. Well, I, I will instead just rephrase uh, the question. Um, 
a computer you could program to, uh, to you could put a, a heat sensor on it and you could program it that if you hold a match to the heat sensor, the computer plays an audio file that screams. And yet we know people, if you burn your finger, it's something different. You, you experience it. You have a first person experience of a burned finger in a way the computer can only sense it. You feel wait, it. Wait, 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 wait. Why do you think the computer isn't having a first person experience? It's not a person. No. Um, okay, it, well, okay. No, no, no. I'm kidding. Um, I, I think that it, if, if you believe the computer experiences pain, uh, I would love to have that conversation. Well, because so let's that talk would about imply... the following situation. Let's okay. talk about a neural net. I mean, they're not that sophisticated yet, and they're not that kind of recurrent. They tend to be just sort of feed the data through the network. But, you know, let's, we've got a neural net, and it's being trained by, you know, experiences that it's having. Okay? And then uh, the, the neural net has some terrible experience. It's terribly traumatic for the neural net. And that trauma will have a consequence if we were to look, you know, sort of forensically at, at how that had affected the weights in the neural net. We would find, oh, there were all these weights that were affected in this or that way by the traumatic experience that the neural net had had. Okay? Now, in what sense do we then think that, you know, we, we then have to tease apart what's the difference between the, the effect, the the kind of that experience the neural net had and the experience the brain has. Well, that's even more insidious than, uh, than putting somehow people and hurricanes and iPhones on kind of the same level. That's even worse because in, in a way what you're saying is I have this, I have this uh, car and uh, the car and I'm, I'm lost in the woods and the car's overheating and, and the engine, and it's out of oil, and the tires are torn up, and, and, and I'm just tearing that car up, but, but I'm being pursued or something, and I have to get out of the woods, and I essentially just destroy this car making my way out. If, if your assumption is, well, that car experience, that car, you know, you were afraid of getting eaten by lions, but you, you killed the car in doing it, and, and to somehow put those two things on the same level, uh, that that well, you can't really make that choice. Like the car, you know, the car. Well, you, the morality of AI is a complicated matter. And for example, if you consider, well, you I'm know, just asking about the basis future. of the basis of human rights are that humans feel pain. The 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 the, the reason we have right laws against harming animals is because animals feel pain. What you're suggesting is infinite loops. If you code an infinite loop, by golly, you should get fined or go to jail. Yeah. Well, I mean, so the question, to put it in a different way, so, you know, if I succeed in making a, you know, a bot autoresponder that's like me and responds to email independent of me, you know, what are the, and, and for example, let's say I'm no longer around, I'm dead, all that's left is the autoresponder. What are the obligations of, um, you know, how does one think about the autoresponder relative to thinking about, you know, the person that the autoresponder represents? What do you think? I mean, I think at that point, I haven't actually thought this through properly, but I think it's not completely, if somebody says, let's delete the autoresponder, interesting. You know, what, what is that relative to, you know, what, what are sort of the moral aspects of doing that? Well, if, if but, your so, argument is it's, it's the moral equivalent of killing a living person, uh, 
I would love to hear that logic. I mean, you could well, say, well, I that's think- a tragedy. That's like burning the Mona Lisa. We would never want to do it. But to say that's right. the equivalent of killing Stephen Wolfram a second time, uh, I mean, I would love to hear that. That uh, Well, I don't, just- I don't know if that's right. I have not thought that through. But I think that the, the you know, my reaction to you saying um, the computer can't feel pain is, I don't know why on earth you're saying that. So let's, let's unpack that statement a little bit. I think it's interesting to unpack. You know, let's talk a little bit about how brains might work and what the world looks like at a time when we really know, you know, we've solved the problem of neurophysiology and, um, or, you know, we've solved the sort of the problem of neuroscience and we can readily make a simulation of a brain. Okay. So we've got our simulated brain and it's the simulated Byron, it's the simulated Stephen and, um, uh, you know, those simulated brains can have a conversation just like we're having a conversation right now. But, you know, unlike our brains, it's easy to go and look at every neuron firing, basically, and see what's happening. Right? And then we start asking ourselves, okay, uh, well, first question is, is, you know, so do you think then that the, the neuron level simulated brain, is the neuron level simulated pain, brain capable of feeling pain? And having feelings and so on, one would assume so because it is. Well, we would we would we would part company on that, but I, I agree that many people would say that. Well, I can't see how you would not say that unless you believe I'm, that I'm, there's something about the brain that is not being simulated. Well, what? let's let's talk about that. I assume you're familiar with the Open Worm Project. So uh, the C. C. Elegans is this uh, the nematode worm. Eighty percent of all animals on the planet are nematode worms, and. Uh, and they, held, they, they had their genome sequenced, and their brain has 302 neurons. And for 20 years... I thought it was different between male and female worms, actually. Fair enough. So I for 20 the female years... female worm has four neurons. Tell I don't know. That may be the case. Two of the 302, I understand, aren't connected to the other ones. But, so, but just to set the problem up, so for 20 years, people have, have said, let's just model these 302 neurons in a computer, and let's just build a digital nematode worm. And of course, not only have they not done it, but there isn't even consensus in the group that it is possible that what is occurring in those neurons may be happening at the, at the Planck level. I mean, y- your basic assumption yeah. in that is that is that physics is complete and that that model you just took of my brain is, is the sum total of everything going on scientifically. And that is far from proven. In fact, there's okay. more evidence against that, uh, okay. that so proposition. Okay, let's talk about that. This basic problem. So, science, a lot of what goes on in science is an attempt to make models of things. Now, models are by their nature incomplete and controversial. That is, what is a model? A model is a way of representing and potentially predicting how a system will behave that captures certain essential features that you're interested in and elides other ones away. Because if you don't elide, some features away, then you just have a copy of the system. Well, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to build an instantiation. It's not a simulation. No, no, no. But but look, any model, there is one case in which this doesn't happen. If I'm right that it's possible to make a complete fundamental model of physics, then that is the one example in which there will be a complete model of something in the world. That is, there's no approximation. Every bit works in the model exactly the way it does in real life. But above that level, when you're saying, oh, I'm going to you know, capture what's going on in a brain with a model, 
what you mean by that is I'm going to make some model which has, you know, uh, a billion degrees of freedom or something. And that model is going to capture everything essential about what's happening in the brain. But it's not going to, uh, it, you know, it, it's clearly not going to represent the motion of every electron in the brain. It's merely going to capture sort of the essential features of what's happening in the brain. And that's, that's what 100% of models, other than this one case of modeling fundamental physics, that's what they always do, is they always say, I'm capturing the part that I care about, and I'm going to ignore the details that are somehow not important for what I care about. So when you make a model of anything, whether it's a brain, whether it's a snowflake, whether it's a, you know, a plant leaf or something, any of these kinds of things, it's always controversial. People will always say, uh, oh, you know, somebody will say, this is a great model because it captures, you know, the overall shape of a snowflake. And somebody else will say, no, 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 it's a terrible model because look, it doesn't capture this particular feature of the 3D structure of ridges in the snowflake, right? And so that we're going to have the same argument about brains. You can always say there's some feature of brains, like for example, you might have a, a, a simulation of a brain that does a, a, you know, a really good job of representing how the neuron firings work, but it doesn't correctly simulate if you bash the brain on the side of its head, so to speak, and give it concussion, it doesn't correctly represent the concussion because it isn't a, uh, something which is physically laid out in three-dimensional space the way that a natural brain is. But wasn't that, wasn't that your assumption of the problem you were setting up, that you have perfectly modeled Byron's brain? I mean... Uh, for purposes, okay, so that's a, good, that's a good point. So the question is, for what purpose is the, model, is, is the model adequate, right? So let's say the model is adequate if, the, uh, you know, if listening to it, talking over the phone, right, it is, uh, you know, indistinguishable in behavior from the actual Byron, okay? But maybe, but then, you know, if you see it in person, maybe and you were to connect, you know, eyes to it, maybe the eye cicads would be different or, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have those or whatever else. I don't know. But, you know, models by their nature aren't complete. But models, the, you know, the, the idea of science, the idea of theoretical science is that you can make models which are useful. If you can't make models, if the only way to figure out what a system does is just to have a copy of the system and watch it do its thing, then you can't do theoretical science in the way that people have traditionally done theoretical science. And so, you know, let's assume that we can make a model of a brain that is good enough that the brain can, for many purposes, sort of emulate the behavior of the, that the model brain can, in many, for many purposes, for the purposes we most care about, can emulate uh, kind of the... Um, uh, the real brain. Well, so now the question is, I've got this model brain. I can look at every feature of how it behaves when I ask it a question or when, I, uh, when it feels pain or whatever else, right? But now the question is, when I look at every detail, what can I say from that? What you would like to be able to say is to make some overarching, tell some overarching story. For example, the brain is feeling pain, right? That is a very complicated statement. What, what you would otherwise say is there's a billion neurons and they have this configuration of firings and, uh, and synaptic weights and God knows what else, right? Those billion neurons don't allow you to come up with a simple to describe story like the brain is feeling pain. It's just, 
you know, here's a gigabyte of data or something. It represents the state of the brain. That's, that's not, that doesn't give you sort of the human level story of the brain is feeling pain. Now, the question is, will there be a human level story to be told about what's happening inside brains? I think that's the very open question. So for example, take a field like linguistics, okay? You might ask the question, you know, how does a brain really understand language? Well, it might be the case that you can sort of see the language coming in, you can see all these little neuron firings going on, and then at the end of it, some particular consequence occurs. But then you, the question is, can you, in the middle of that, can you sort of tell the story of what happened? Let, let me give you an analogy, which I happen to have been looking at recently, um, which might at first seem, seem kind of far-fetched, but I, I think is actually very related. So the analogy is mathematical theorems. So when you, uh, you know, we, you can, for example, I've, I've done lots of things where I've figured out mathematical truths using automated theorem proving. One in particular I did 20 years ago of finding the simplest axiom system for, for logic, for Boolean algebra. So this particular proof generated it automatically. It's 130 steps or so. Um, it involves many intermediate stages, many lemmas. I've looked at this proof off and on for 20 years. And the question is, can I tell what on earth is going on? Can I tell any story about what's happening? I can readily verify that, yes, the proof is correct. Every step follows from every other step. The question is, can I tell somebody a humanly interesting story about the innards of this proof? And the answer is, so far, I've completely failed. Now, what would it take for there to be such a story? Kind of interesting. The, if some of the lemmas that showed up in the intermediate stages of that proof were, in a sense, culturally famous, I would be in much better position. That is, when you look at a proof that people say, oh yeah, this is a good you know, proof of some mathematical theorem, you know, a lot of it is, oh, this is Gauss's such and such theorem, this is Euler's such and such theorem, that one's using at different stages in the proof. In other words, those intermediate stages are things about which there is a whole kind of culturally interwoven story that can be told, as opposed to just, this is a lemma that was generated by an automated theorem proving system, and we have no idea you know, we can tell that it's true, but we have no idea what it's really about, what it's really saying, what its significance is, what its purpose is, any of these kinds of words. Um, I mean, I think it's, and so the same thing, that's also, by the way, the same thing that seems to be happening in kind of the modern neural nets that we're looking at, where essentially, well, let's say we have an image identifier. The image identifier inside itself is making all kinds of distinctions, it's saying, you know, I, this image is of type A, this, you know, and it not of type B. Well, what is A and B? Well, we might, it might be a human describable thing. This image is very light. This image is very dark. This image has lots of vertical stripes. This image has lots of horizontal stripes. Um, they might be uh, descriptors of images for which we have developed words in our languages, in our human languages. Um, in fact, they're probably not. In fact, they are sort of emergent concepts, which are useful kind of symbolic concepts for, at an intermediate stage of, this, of the processing in this neural net, but they're not uh, things for which we have in our sort of cultural development uh, generated, you know, produced, uh, chosen to describe those concepts by words and things. We haven't, we haven't provided kind of this cultural anchor for that concept. So I think the same thing is true. So 
the question is when we look at brains and how they work and so on, and we look at sort of the inner behavior, and, we, and you know, we, let's say we've got a, a very good simulation and we see all this complicated stuff going on and we generate all this data and we can see all these bits on the screen and so on. And then we say, okay, well, what's really going on? Well, in a sense, that's then we're doing standard natural science. You know, when we're confronted with the world, we see all sorts of complicated things going on and we say, well, what's really going on? And then we say, oh, well, actually, there's this general law, like the laws of thermodynamics or some laws of motion or something like this. There's a general law that we can talk about that describes some aspect of what's happening in the world. So a big question then is when we look at brains, how much of what happens in brains can we expect to be capable of telling stories about? Now, obviously, when it comes to brains, you know, there's a long history in psychology, psychoanalysis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, where people have tried to make up essentially stories about what's happening in brains. Um, but we're kind of going to know at some point, you know, we're going to have the, uh, at the bit level, we're going to know what happens in brains. And then the question is, how much of a story can be told? So my guess is that that story is actually going to be somewhat limited. I mean, there's this phenomenon I call computational irreducibility that has to do with this question of whether you can effectively tell an overarching, you know, whether you can make sort of an overarching statement about what will happen in the system or whether you do just have to follow every bit of its behavior to know what it's going to do. And so one of the bad things that can happen is that we have our brain, we have our simulated brain, and it does what it does. And we can, yes, we can verify that based on every neuron firing, it's going to do what we observe it to do. Um, but then when we say, well, why did it do that? We may be stuck having no very good description of it. I mean, this, this phenomenon is, is deeply tied into all kinds of other sort of fundamental science issues. It's, it's very much tied into Gödel's theorem, for example. I mean, in Gödel's theorem, the analogy is this. Um, when you say, uh, okay, I'm going to describe arithmetic, and I'm going to say arithmetic is that abstract system that satisfies the following axioms. And then you start trying to work out the consequence of those axioms, and you realize that in addition to representing like ordinary integers, those axioms allow all kinds of incredibly exotic integers, which if you ask about certain kinds of questions, will give different answers from ordinary integers. And you might say, okay, let's try to add sort of uh, let, let's try to to add constraints. Let's try to add a finite number of axioms that will kind of lock down what's going on. Well, Gödel's theorem shows that you can't do that, and it's kind of the same. It's the same sort of uh, mathematical structure, kind of scientific structure, as this whole issue of you can't expect to be able to find sort of uh, uh, simple descriptions of what goes on in lots of these kinds of systems. So you know, I think that what this, what this, both you know, one of the things that this leads to is the fact that uh, both in our own brains and in sort of uh, other intelligences, other sort of computational intelligences, that there'll be lots of kinds of inner behavior where we may not ever have kind of a an easy to describe in large scale symbolic terms kinds of things going on. And, you know, it, it's a little bit shocking to us that we are now constructing systems that where we may never be able to say in a sort of human understandable way what's going on inside these systems. You might say, okay, the system has produced this output. Um, explain that output to me. Just like 
the following mathematical theorem is true. Explain why it's true. Well, you know, if the if the why it's true comes from an automated theorem prover, there may not be a an explanation that humans can ever sort of wrap their brains around um, about that. And you know, partly because again, I'm maybe I'm uh, th the main issue is uh, you might say, well, let's just invent new kind of words in a language to describe these new kind of lumps of computation that we see happening in these different systems. The problem, and that's what one saw even from Gödel's theorem, the problem is that the number of new concepts that one has to invent is not finite. That is, as you keep on going, you keep on looking at different kinds of things that brains or other sort of computational systems can do, there is sort of an infinite diversity of possible things. And there, there won't be any, any time where you can say, okay, there's this sort of fixed inventory of kind of patterns that you have to know about and that you can maybe describe with words. And that's all you need to be able to say what's going to happen in these systems. So as, as, the, as the AIs get better and, you know, we personify them more, we give them, you know, more, more mobility, and they do actually seem to experience the world, whether they do or they don't, but they seem to. At what point in your mind do we no, are we no longer, can we no longer tell them what to do? Can we no longer have them go plunge our toilet when it stops up? At what point are they afforded rights? Can. Well, what's that? I mean, by can. I mean, I, I, I think that. Well, can is in. I mean, surely we can coerce, but I mean, ethically can. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, ethics is defined by the way people feel about things. In other words, it's not the case. There is no absolute ethics. Well, okay, then, then fair enough. So I'll rephrase the question. I assume your ethics preclude you from coercing other entities into doing your bidding. Uh, at what point do you decide to stop programming computers to, to do your bidding? And at what point do I let them have their own um, uh, do, do what they want, so to speak? Right. Well, I mean, gosh, the, uh, you know, when do I feel that there is a moral need to let my computer do something just because, well, let me give you an example, okay? Um, you know, I've often had computers do complicated searches for things that take months of CPU time, okay? How do I feel about, you know, cutting the thing off, you know, moments before it might have finished? Well, I usually don't feel like I want to do that. Now, do I not want to do that purely because I want to get the result? Or do I feel some uh, kind of feeling, oh my gosh, the computer's done so much work, I don't just want to cut it off. I'm not sure, actually. Um, do, you still, think, do you still say thank you to, uh, to, the, to the automatic ticket thing when you leave the parking garage? Uh, yes, to my children's great amusement, I have I have I've made a principle of doing that for a long time. Is it possible? You know, there's it's this kind of, there's, kind of to get used to that idea. Stephen, I don't I don't know how to say this, but I think maybe you've been surrounded by the computers so much that you kind of have Stockholm syndrome and you identify with them. I, I think more to the point, you might say, you know, I've spent so much time thinking about computation. Maybe I become computation myself as a result. Well, in a certain sense, yes, absolutely that's happened to me in the following sense. 
you know, we think about things and we have, how do we, how do we form our thoughts? Well, you know, philosophers, some philosophers think that, you know, we use language to form our thoughts. Some think thoughts are somewhat independent of language. One thing I can say for sure, you know, I've spent some large part of my life doing computer language design, building our Wolfram language system and so on. And absolutely, I think in, uh, you know, in patterns that are determined by that language. That is, if I try to solve a problem, I am uh, both consciously and, and subconsciously trying to structure that problem in such a way that I can express it in that language and so that I can use the structure of that language as a way to help me you know, understand the problem. Do I become a computer, so to speak? Um, I think it really, uh, it's really a very interesting thing that, yes, I absolutely, you know, as a result of the fact that I formulate my thoughts in no small way using Wolfram language and using this, you know, a, a computational language, absolutely, I probably think about things in a different way than I would if I had not been exposed to computers. And I think that undoubtedly that kind of structuring of my thinking is something that, you know, affects probably more than I know, so to speak. Um, and, uh, but in terms of whether, uh, I, um, um, you know, do I think about people, for example, like I think about computational systems? Um, actually, most of my thinking about people is probably based on sort of gut instinct and heuristics. Um, I think that the main thing that I might have learned from my study of computational things is that there aren't simple principles when it comes to looking at the overall behavior of something like people. There may be things that, uh, you know, if you, if you dig down, you say, how do the neurons work? Yeah, we may be able to answer that. But the very fact that uh, this phenomenon of computational irreducibility happens is almost a denial of the possibility that there is going to be a simple overall theory of, for example, people's actions or certain kinds of things that happen in the world, so to speak. So in a sense, you know, the kind of the, you know, people used to think that when we applied science to things, that it would make them very cut and dried. Um, I think computational irreducibility shows that that's just not true, um, that there can be an underlying science, one can understand how the components work and so on, but it may not be that the, that the overall behavior is cut and dried. It's not like, you know, the kind of 1950s science fiction robots where the thing would kind of start having smoke come out of its ears, you know, if there was some, you know, logical inconsistency that it detected in the world or something. Um, this kind of uh, uh, sort of simple view of um, uh, what can happen in computational systems is, is just not right. And it's, it's, it's um, you know, I think probably if, if there's one thing that's come out of my science in terms of my view of people at that level, it's that, no, I, I doubt that I'm really going to be able to say, okay, if this, then that, you know, kind of apply but, very simple rules to the way that people work. But hold on a second. I thought the whole way you got to something that looked like free will, I thought your thinking was, uh, no, there isn't. But the thing is, is the number of calculations you would have to do to predict the action is so many, you can't do it. And so it's effectively free will, but it isn't really. Do you still think that? That's correct. Yep. So, Absolutely. So, the, so, but the same would apply to people. In a sufficiently large enough computer, you would be able to... Yes, but, okay. but, but the whole point is, 
as a practical matter and leading mm -hmm, one's life, mm -hmm. one isn't doing that. That's sure, the whole point. Right, right, but, able but, to do those. But to apply that back to your Byron's brain feeling pain, couldn't that be the same sort of thing? It's like, well, yeah, the amount of, sure, maybe that's just calculation, but the amount of calculation that would have to happen for a computer to feel pain is just, is just not, not calculable. No, I mean, it's, it's uh, look, okay, there's a, there's a question of, you know, how many neurons, how much accuracy, you know, what's the cycle time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we're probably coming fairly close and we will, in coming years, we'll get, we'll get decently close to being able to emulate with digital electronics um, kind of the important parts of what happens in brains. I mean, you so, might always argue, you know, oh, it's the microtubules on every neuron that are really carrying the information. But, Maybe that's true. I doubt it. And okay, that's I, many orders of magnitude further than what we can readily get to with digital electronics in the next few years. But either, either you can model a brain and know what I'm going to say next and know that I felt pain, or, or, or you can't, and you can preserve some semblance of free will. I mean, like... I, no, no, no. I, Both things are true. You, okay. you can absolutely have free will, even, even if I can model your brain at the level of knowing what you will say next. By If I do this, essentially the same level of computation that your brain is doing, uh, or then... You know, then I can work out what you will say next. But the fact is, to do that, I effectively have to have a brain that's as powerful as your brain, and I have to be just following along with your brain. Now, there is a detail here, which is this question of levels of modeling and so on, and how much do you have to capture, and do you have to go all the way down to the atoms, or is it sufficient to just say, what, you know, does this neuron fire or not? And yes, you're right that there's sort of footnotes to this whole thing. When I say, uh, you know, when I say how much free will, well, free enough will that it takes, uh, you know, a billion machine operation, you know, a billion logical operations to work out whether you will say uh, true or false. Okay. If it takes a billion operations to t say whether you're going to say, to tell whether you're going to say true or false, um, you know, should one say that you are behaving as if you have free will, even though were you to do those billion operations, you can deterministically tell you're going to say true or you're going to say false. As a practical matter, in kind of interacting with you, I would say you're behaving as if you have free will because I can't immediately do those billion operations to figure out the answer. Now, you know, in a future world where we are capable of doing kind of more computation uh, more efficiently, for example, we may we may eventually have ways to do computation that are much more efficient than brains. And at that point, we have our simulated brains and we have our uh, you know top of the line computers made at an atomic scale or whatever else. And yes, it may very well be the case that as a practical matter, the atomic scale computers outcompute simulated brains by factors of trillions. Well, okay. I'll only ask one more question along this because I, I must I must be somewhat obtuse, but. I'm not a very good chess player, you know. If I get a, if I get a, a download a program on my iPad, I, you know, play at level four out of ten or something. So say I flip it up to level five, I don't know what move the computer is going to make next, right? Because like it's going to beat me. I don't have a clue what what it's going to move next. That's the whole point. And yet I never think, oh, it, because I don't know, it therefore must have free will. Uh, that's true. You probably don't think that. Um, it depends on what the computer is doing. I mean, the, you know, chess kind of 
there's enough of a sort of background of sort of chess playing and so on that that's not an immediate kind of question for you. If the computer was having a conversation with you, you know, if suddenly in 2017, the computer was able to have a sort of uh, Turing test complete conversation with you, I think you will be less certain. Now, I think that, again, the, you know, there is a progression of, you know, just like these, okay, you know, an awful lot of what people believe and how people feel about different things about, you know, does the computer have consciousness? Does it blah, 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 blah. An awful lot of that, I think, ends up coming about because of sort of the historical thread of development that leads to a particular thing. In other words, imagine, it's an interesting exercise. Imagine that you took a laptop of today back to, I don't know, Pythagoras or something. Okay. What on earth would he think of it? What would he think it was? And how would he describe it? I mean, I, I wondered about this at some point. I, my, my conclusion is we'd start talking about, you know, what is this thing? It's like disembodied human souls, you know, this thing that's operating. Then you explain, well, no, it isn't really, you know, it's not really disembodied human soul. I mean, it's a, well, they'd say, well, well, where did all these things that are on the computer come from? Say, well, well, they were actually put there by programmers, but then the computer does more stuff and it, it gets very complicated. And I think you would, you know, it's sort of an interesting thought experiment to imagine at a different time in history, Pythagoras is a particularly interesting case because of his, you know, thinking about souls and so on, and his thinking about mathematics. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, is to, is to imagine what at a different time in history would somebody imagine the technology of today was actually like. And that helps us to understand the extent to which we are kind of prisoners of our particular time in history. I mean, to take the thought experiment of what if we have a, a super in some sense, computer that can predict what our brains do a trillion times faster than our brains actually do it. Um, you know, how will that affect our view of the world? And, um, uh, and my guess is that what will actually happen, uh, if, that, if that happens, and it, and it presumably will in some sense, we will have by that time long outsourced much of our thinking to machines that just do it faster than we do. Just like we could decide that we're going to walk everywhere we want to go. But actually, we outsource much of our transportation to cars and airplanes and things like that that do it much faster than we do it. You could say, well, that's not, you know, we're, you're outsourcing your humanity by, by driving in a car. Well, we don't think that anymore because of the particular sort of thread of history by which we led, uh, you know, ended up with cars. Similarly, um, you might say, oh, my gosh, you're, you, you know, you're outsourcing your humanity by having a computer think for you. In fact, you know, that argument comes up when, uh, when people use the tools we've built to you know, do their homework or whatever else. Um, but uh, uh, in fact, I think as a practical matter, people will increasingly sort of outsource their thinking processes to machines. And then the question is, and that sort of relates to what I think you were going to ask about sort of the, the role of, you know, should a humans be afraid of AIs and so on? You know, that sort of relates to, well, where does that leave us humans when all these things, including the things that you still seem to believe are unique and special to humans, but I'm sure they're not, you know, when, when all of those things have been long overtaken by machines, um, you know, where does that leave, where does that leave us? Well, I think the answer is that, that, you know, you can have a computer sitting on your desk doing the fanciest computation you can imagine. And, you know, it, it's, it's working out the evolution of, you know, Turing machine number, blah, 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 blah. 
right? And it's doing that. And it's doing it for a year. Why is it doing that? Hmm. Well, it doesn't really have a story about why it's doing it. It doesn't have a kind of, it can't explain its purpose because if, if it could explain it, it would be explaining it in, in terms of some kind of history, in terms of some kind of, you know, uh, past culture of the computer, so to speak. So I think, I think that the way I see it is, you know, computers on their own simply don't have, and, and, you know, this notion of purpose is something that is, in a sense, uh, you know, one, one can imagine that, that, you know, the weather has a purpose that it sort of has for itself. But this notion of purpose that is connected to what we think, you know, that what we humans do, that is a specific human kind of thing. And, you know, that's something that nobody gets to automate. It doesn't mean anything to automate that. It doesn't mean anything to say, let's, let's take away, let's, let's just invent a new purpose that is, uh, just comes, you know, we could pick a random purpose. We could have something where we say, okay, there are a bunch of machines and they all have random purposes. Um, we can, uh, you know, if you look at different humans, in some sense, there's a certain degree of randomness in their different purposes. Not all humans have the same purposes. Not all humans believe, you know, the same things, have the same goals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we could, but, but if you say, is there something intrinsic, you know, about the purpose for the machines, I, they're just... That, I don't think that question really means anything. It, it, it ultimately reflects back on the thing I keep on saying about sort of the thread of history that leads humans to have uh, to to have and think about purposes in the ways that they do. Well, but but that if if that AI is alive, and you know, you you began by taking my question about what is what is life, and if you get to a point where you say it's alive, then we do know that living things have their, their first purpose is to survive. So presumably the AI would want to survive. And then their second purpose is to reproduce. Their third purpose is to grow. I mean, they, they all naturally just flow out of the fact that all, all of kind of the, the, the quintessence of what it means to be alive. And then, then from, well, what does it mean for me to be alive? It means for me to have a power source. Okay, I need a power source. Okay, I need mobility. I, and so it, it just creates all of those just from the simple fact of being alive. I, I don't think so. I think that that's, you're, you're projecting that onto what you define as being alive. I mean, it is correct. There is, in a sense, one zeroth level purpose, which is you have to exist if you're going to have any purpose at all. Right. If you don't exist, then sort of everything's off the table. So, in some sense, um, but you know, the question of whether a machine, a program, whatever else, um, has a a a desire in some sense to exist—that's a complicated question. I mean, it's like saying, you know, are there going to be suicidal programs? Of course, there are right now. You know, many programs their purpose is to finish, terminate, and disappear. And, um, you know, that's much rarer, perhaps fortunately for humans. But so, I think, um, go ahead. So where, what is the net of all of this to you then? So, you know, you, you, hear, you hear certain luminaries in the world say we should be afraid of, of these systems. You hear dystopian views about the world of the future. Like, you've talked about a lot of things that are possible and how you think everything operates, but what do you think the future is going to be like in 10 years, 20, think, 50, a hundred? What, 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 I, look? I think what we will see is an increasing mirror on the human condition, so to speak. That is what, 
we are building are things that essentially amplify any aspect of the human condition. And what we, so then it sort of reflects back on us. So what do we want? You know, what are the goals that we want to, to have achieved? Now, will it be the case that, I mean, it, it is a complicated thing because certainly AIs will, in some sense, run many aspects of the world. Many kinds of systems, just there's no point in having people run them. They'll just be, you know, they're going to be automated in some way or another. Saying it's an AI is really just a fancy way of saying it's going to be automated. And then the question is, well, what are the overall principles that those automated systems should follow? And so, for example, one principle that we believe is important right now is the be nice to humans principle. Um, you know, that seems like a good one, given that we're, we're in charge right now, better set things up so that it's like, be nice to humans. Um, you know, one could argue. And so even defining what it means to be nice to humans is really complicated. I mean, I've been much involved in trying to use you know, Wolfram language is a way of describing lots of computational things and an increasing number of things about the world. I also want it to be able to describe things like, you know, legal contracts and sort of desires that people have. And so part of the purpose of that is to provide a language that is understandable both to humans and to machines that can say what it is we want to have happen globally with AIs. What is the, what principles, what general ethical principles, uh, sort of philosophical principles should AIs operate under? I mean, you know, we had the Asimov's laws of robotics, which are sort of a very simple version of that. Um, I think what we're in going to realize is, you know, we need to sort of define a constitution for the AIs, and there won't be just one because there aren't just one set of people, and, you know, people, different people want different kinds of things. And we get thrown into all kinds of political philosophy issues about, well, you know, uh, you know, should you have an infinite number of countries effectively in the world, each with their own AI constitution? You know, how should that work? Should you, uh, one of the fun things I was thinking about recently is, you know, in current democracies, um, one just has people vote on things. It's like, you know, a, 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 a multiple choice answer. You know, one could imagine a situation in which, um, and I, I take this mostly as a thought experiment because there are all kinds of practical issues with it, um, in a world where, um, we're not just natural language literate, but also computer language literate, and uh, and where we have languages like Wolfram language, which can actually represent real things in the world. Um, one can imagine not just voting, I want A, B, or C, but effectively submitting a program that represents what one wants to see happen in the world. And then the election consists of taking X number of millions of programs and saying, okay, Given these X number of millions of programs, let's apply our sort of AI constitution to figure out, given these programs, how do we want the best things to happen in the world? And of course, you're thrown into the precise issues of the moral philosophers and so on, um, of what, uh, uh, you know, what you then want to have happen and whether you want the, you know, the average happiness of the world to be higher or whether you want the minimum happiness to be at least something or whatever else. Um, but I think the, the thing in terms of, uh, uh, you know, there will be kind of an increasing, I think, pressure on, you know, what should the effectively, you know, the law-like things, which are really going to be effectively the programs for the AIs, what should they look like? How should they reflect? What aspects of the human condition and human preferences should they reflect? How will that work? 
across the however many billions of people there are in the world. Um, how does that work when, um, when, for example, the um, uh, uh, you know, in, in when a lot of the thinking in the world is not done in brains, but is done in some more digital form? Um, you know, how does it work when there are no longer sort of uh, when the notion of a uh, kind of a, a single person is is you know right now that's a very clear notion um that won't be such a clear notion when more of the thinking and so on is done in digital form and so on I well mean, there's, that, there's a lot to say about this that that is probably a, a great place to leave it um i want to thank you Stephen. needless to say uh that was uh mind expanding would be the the most humble way to describe it thank you for taking the time and chatting with us today sure sure happy to If you enjoyed this podcast, we recommend you also tune in to the AI podcast produced by our friends at Dell EMC and Intel, using technology to solve some of the toughest challenges on the planet. The AI podcast is available online through iTunes, Google Play Music, and SoundCloud.